Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, we have been uh, in a series uh, called Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down, a series on mortality, uh, reminding ourselves that eventually we all fall down or will fall down. Um, and I know it's been a very dark process in the, in the in the summer to be able to go in through this, and that's why I cut the series short a week to get past this and move past this, but... <laughs> Um, so today we're going to conclude it, and that wasn't originally the plan, but we're going to move forward with that today. Um, and the purpose behind it was not just because I wanted to get you, I wanted to take you on an emotional roller coaster, laugh at this kid with corn, cry at all this other stuff. Um, I wanted to do it because I do feel like living with a picture of our mortality, living with a, an awareness of it, um, is a centralizing thing for us, and that oftentimes we live in a culture that uh, tries to deny our mortality or move us past that as quickly as possible. Uh, people die in hospitals rather than homes. Um, cemeteries are pushed to the outskirts of the community where they used to be in the church parking lot, right? And so uh, we we don't want to focus on. We don't talk about that. We you know, it's, remember you ever watched a uh, like a football game or whatever, and they like they what happens when something tragic happens? They say, oh, we're not going to show the re- we're going to cut to commercial, right? Why? Because they don't want to show that this is part of, uh, of the game. And uh, in, in, in a sense, our culture sort of does that a ton. Um, when, when people are going through grief and tragedy and, and loss and death of life, we, we cut to commercial, right? And we, we, we do this, this strategy. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look at it. And, and, and I understand partly why, and, and I, I get it. But I do think that um, an awareness of our mentality, again, uh, helps us to live a life more fully. And that's, that's why it's important to talk about this. Um, to close our time together, I want to talk about injuring the community, and, and that's the title uh, that I've kind of assigned for this, because Erin uh, mentioned something in her video about that, of just like, you know, it, this person's uh, death in my life robbed me of, of not only a relationship with that person, but just, you know, uh, it affected other things. It affected my whole, not just our relationship of my life in general, and that, that can be true as well. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves uh, a long time ago, and... Uh, and he said uh, that the basic premise of the book is that in the English language for the word love, we just say, I love my wife in the same way I love cheeseburgers. And that's, those are two different things, but we don't, we, you know, we, we know that there's a difference, but we don't say that there's a difference. It's the same terminology. Anyways, um, and so, but in, in the Greek, there's, there's four different ways that you would say, I love this, to, to, to be able to distinguish between these two things. And so eros type of love is, I, I love something romantically, right? Uh, and then uh, philo is like this, I love somebody as a friend. So it, it, it avoids the awkwardness of somebody saying, I love you, and then them misinterpreting that going, are we dating now? Is this a thing? You're like, no, 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 sorry. <laughs> So you should read The Four Loves. That's why you should read it. But um, he talks about it in, uh, in the chapter, and probably the best one of the book is the chapter on friendship. And I think, I think it's the best because he mentions it. In our culture, we put uh, romantic love, eros, at the top of kind of like the pinnacle of success. Like we, 
that's the most isolated, it's the most exclusive uh, of all. You can be friends with a lot of people, but typically, hopefully, you're only romantic, you know, romantically involved with one at a time. Maybe that's different for your life. That, well, we can talk about that. That's another session. Uh, that's another series. Um, but for the most part, it's a very exclusive sort of love, and whereas friendship is, you know, you can have, you can say you can have too, many, too much friends, but like, go ahead and try it out, because that sounds exciting. Like, it's, it's fun to have lots of friends and, and have people want to be around you and all of that. And, and he would say... Um, that type of love in in sort of ancient literature was the pinnacle. That it was the it was the friendship that comes with fighting alongside somebody in like a warrior sort of setting. It was you're closer to them than you would be even to your romantic partner. There's it's a, they're different. Those are very different things, but um, but like that love that kind of goes that is that is that is fully vulnerable, that is fully authentic, that is fully known and experienced and, and reciprocated. Um, almost comes best in that sort of friendship sort of thing. And, and, and maybe, maybe you know this because r- you know, romance has been kind of an up and down battle for you, but like you've got some core friends and you feel fulfilled in life. And, and sometimes your parents are like, when are you gonna get married? Do this sort of thing. And you're like, I'm good. Like I'm, I, I love where I'm at. And, and sometimes it feels like culture has told us that there's something missing there, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and this friendship thing is, is a big deal. And when you get the right friend, you know this, right? Because you've had some friends since high school, since college, whatever. These are lifelong friends. You know that those friendships bring a quality to your life that is unmistakable. And you would, you know, you would give anything uh, to, to keep those healthy and and. Or if, if, if that was one, if you had that at one point and that got lost because of distance and somebody moved or a death or a loss of this, you know the pain involved in that and how much you'd go back and wish you could do something like that. And so that, that's what he says uh, is so uh, painful about death sometimes is that, especially in the area of that friendship sort of relationship, um, he, he says, he likens it to like, if there were three people in a relationship, person A, person B, and person C, when person C dies, if we all hung, if the three of us hung out every Thursday night doing trivia, doing games, doing something, we just got together for beers or whatever, and that was our thing. We were a group, we were, we were, we were, we were tight, we were a circle of friends, right? The three musketeers or whatever you wanna call it. And one of those people dies, what happens is it's not just we subtract it by one, there's an element about the, if he says I'm person A, there's a thing about person B that only comes out when person C is alive and was there to kind of bring it out of them. So when person C died, like not only did I lose C, I lost a part of B as well, person B as well. Like that robbed me of, of the way that they would joke and rib each other and, and laugh at each other, with each other, make fun of each other. The jokes that would be inherent in those things, the, the little hidden things that maybe I try and, and, and use that voice or that joke or that ribbing, it's just not the same. I'm like, I'm like cheating a little bit, you know what I mean? It was so authentic with them and it's so missing with us. So when that person is absent from the scene, whether through you know, a, a distance move or a, a lot of times a death, it feels like a lot, it injures the community in, in a unique way. I've lost something big in this thing, not just that person, but my whole experience with the community is different. And if you've lost a family member or loved one, it's not just an, now we have an empty seat at the Thanksgiving table, there's, it, there's a different side of your mom. If your dad passed away, your, your, your mom's different now. She carries a different title with her. She's now a widow and dealing with all of the things that come along with that. And there's a happiness and a joy and a partnership that she doesn't have anymore. So, so she's processing through this and it's very, very different. And, and sometimes it's, it, it, you know, it can be 
good for relationships, bad for relationships. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's dynamic, but what it is is it's not the same. My uh, maternal grandmother passed away when I was in middle school. And I remember it was one of those processes. We weren't all that close because she lived on the west side in Puyallup area and never, ever came and visited us. Um, and we would always be on our side to go visit her. And uh, I remember when she passed away, there was like a period where we got a phone call from my uncle who said, all right, grandma's like, uh, it's close. Like you need to come say your goodbyes. And so we all drove over, I remember, uh, and we said our goodbyes. And then my mom stayed and she took care of my grandma for the last two or three, I don't remember how long it was. Uh, probably felt like my dad, like three months, but it was probably because he's home with four kids. But, um, uh, but it was a, a period of time where she stayed and was the caregiver. And then we got to come back and kind of see her. And I, I got to see a side of my mom in that scenario that I'd never seen before. I mean, she'd always been a caretaker of us as a family, but like as a daughter to a mom in that connection. And she... I remember her talking about this years later saying, I, I would never have missed that for the world. I got to have conversations with my mom that we hadn't had for 20, 30 years. There were, there were stories that would come up about family history because the family history, Grammy didn't like to talk about that kind of stuff. It was just mom, all that kind of stuff. And there was an openness, there was a relationship, there was something there that was a huge deal. And now that that's gone, there's closure and it affects the way that she you know, connects with her brother and sister because now mom's not there. To, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. There's a, there's a community effect of this sort of thing. And it affects us individually. When that thing happens, there's some pain involved uh, with all of that. And so how, how do we, how, how does this process, how does this sort of thing reflect on us? What, what is it that we need to learn about this that helps us then live well moving forward? What is the way of Jesus? Because that's what we're here for, right? We're a church. So this is what we gather for, not just to talk about death, but to talk about Jesus' perspective on this and the hope that comes with the, all of this. How does this change kind of us sort of moving forward in this way? Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church. Um, and we've, I talked about Paul last week and and him dealing with the church in Thessalonica. Specifically, they were obsessed with death and he had some thoughts to say about them, but it shows up in other of his writings as well because that's not far from any of our minds. And, and for sure, some of these churches were watching family members die and, and hearing about Jesus. And one of the things about Jesus's story, the, un, the, the unique feature of Jesus's story was not that he was a really smart teacher. Hundreds of and thousands of smart teachers had come before Jesus. What was unique about Jesus's story, his angle, was that we saw him die and then there were, there were uh, reports of his resurrection from the dead. And we'd never seen anything like that. We'd never heard anything like that. That was not a story, oh, another rabbi rose from the dead, another one of these stories. This was an original thing. This was a this was an extreme measure. This was something that was so out there, you wouldn't come up with this story for the reason that it would be easily kind of shut down if it hadn't been real, right? We'll talk about that at Easter. Come back at Easter. We'll talk about the, the veracity or the truth or the whatever of the probability of kind of resurrection piece. But that's, that's what was so unique about this. They're, they're saying this Jesus character beat this thing that nobody has seemed to be. And then there was language in his talk about where I go, you will you know, one day follow. There's, there's some sort of airship in Christ. There's some, sort of, there's some sort of handoff that is in this. And so the, all of these churches are going, if we're worshiping a guy who beats death, like, is there any of that in it for us? Is there anything about death that we should no longer, that we should treat death differently, that it should affect the way that we live? Most Jewish people had no concept of an afterlife prior to New Testament Jesus on the scene. 
When you died in the Old Testament, there was no promise of someday we'll live with Moses and Abraham and Jacob and, and all those kind of people. When you died, you went down to Sheol, which was basically a place of nothingness. This was even, even David's prayers. When I go down there, don't forget me, O Lord, right? This was a, 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 when you died, you just died. That was it. It was when Jesus shows up on the scene and through this idea of, or this thing of resurrection, then that changed the game. Now discussions began to be had about what does this mean for us? What does this translate to for us? And so it shows up in various of his letters. Some more emphasis on the, like again, Thessalonians, big emphasis, less so in Corinthians, but it's still there. And that's the passage I wanna close our time with uh, for this series. Shows up in chapter 15. We're gonna start in verse 12. It's gonna be on the screen. As always, all of these verses and anything that I put up on the screens is always available uh, via our app. There's a notes section. So I'm gonna go through this a little bit fast. If you wanna go back on your own time or follow along with that, you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash notes or just download the app and you can click a button. All right, back to this. Well then, if the royal proclamation of the Messiah is made on the basis that he's been raised from the dead, right? And this was a, this was a he's, he's basically saying, I haven't seen a version of Christianity that has come out at this state, at this point, that is just Jesus as a moral teacher. Everything up to this point has been Jesus who rose from the dead said this, therefore you should live differently. So he's, pre- he's presenting that. How can some of you say, that there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. We know because we've talked about this before that the, the, that the Corinthian letters were an exchange of correspondence, that there was probably a letter that came before this that we don't have. Uh, we don't have their letter back to Paul, but we, we see them kind of talking back and forth through some issues. I hear this is going on in your church. You gotta knock it off. I hear you think this about communion. I hear you think about this, about the, the, you know, all of these different gifts of the spirit. And one of these things that Paul is hearing is them saying, them adopting a version of Christianity that is, high on Jesus perhaps, but low on the resurrection of the dead, low on the idea of an afterlife. Some people in this church are looking at it going, I really like the morality that Jesus talked about, but I'm gonna take a pass on talk about afterlife and any hope beyond this life, that there is life beyond this life. I believe simply that when you die, you die, you go back into the ashes and you know, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. We go back into the world that we came from and we become part of the universe uh, in that way. Again, he's going, listen, I've, I've heard that you're adopting one thing and leaving something behind. I wanna talk about if that's an okay thing to do, but I, this is the message that he gets, right? Um, if there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, the Messiah hasn't been raised either. These people, are saying to themselves, like the likelihood, like they, they are, they're processing through this going, listen, I believe that when you die, you die. And, and maybe uh, that, that is a, like a very good, underst- I understand if you walked in the room today thinking that way too, I get it. Well, you've seen people die, they've all stayed dead. If that's not true, I would love to meet you after service today. Cause we got, you should be doing the next My Story video, right? I had an uncle, it was crazy, came back, unreal. Still a jerk, but anyways, he's alive. For the most part, that's how life works. And so we get it. We understand this is not an irrational belief. But Paul is trying to say, listen, if for you, the jump to believing in some sort of life after this life is too big for you, and yet you still say you still adopt the teachings of Jesus, he's like, I, don't, I feel like that's a little bit incompatible 
I feel like you would, you would not truly understand the depth of the nature of the holiness of Christ without this. Can we adopt the moral teachings of Jesus without saying he rose from the dead? Paul would say, listen, the likelihood of you genuinely believing in Christ's resurrection without in, holding any hope for your own is kind of unlikely. So this is the next step, he says. He goes, listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, I'm not sure what validates his teachings enough to be like, this is the way, this is how you should pattern after your life. And then if you do believe in the resurrection of Christ, but I don't believe it in myself, he's going, then I don't really think you believe in the resurrection of Christ. I think that, that, that you, 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 you may you know, say that you do, but you actually don't live your life in that in any way. Because if you did with this discussion of heirship, this, discover, this discussion of we are sons of Jesus, all that kind of stuff, this, this kind of thing that we inherit means something for us. I, I don't think that you can just leave it. This is Paul working through this, trying to dialogue with them, trying to get them to understand. Even if you assent to the idea of Jesus' resurrection, that would then preclude you from... Or, or, you know, mandate or whatever, that you would have some sort of an understanding for yourself, that you would live with a hope that there is life beyond this life. And then he goes on and says, and if the Messiah hasn't been raised, then our royal proclamation is empty and so is your faith. If you say, I don't believe in the life after life for me, then he would say, then you don't really believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And if you don't believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, then everything that he talked about is sort of empty and your faith is kind of a shell a little bit. For Paul, Christ's resurrection is not Christ's own doing, but God's vindication, his validation of the work of his son. Meaning that a denial of the resurrection of the dead leads ultimately to a denial of the gospel altogether. Jesus comes and claims to be God himself and this picture perfect, you don't have to worry, you don't have to think about the Old Testament convoluted idea of what God was, it, it comes in its most clearest, purest form through the person of Jesus. And to validate that claim, I'm gonna conquer death just to like dispel any concerns about that being the case or true or whatever. And if that is true, then denial of the resurrection of the dead leads a denial to really the power of Christ's teaching as a whole, according to Paul. <clears throat> he goes on. We even turn out to have been misrepresenting God because we gave it as our evidence about Christ or the, about God that he raised the Messiah and he didn't. If that is, if that is, the dead are not raised. Sorry, let me read that again because I screwed that up. I'm so concerned about getting a drink, hang on. <laughs> Ooh, all right. We even turn out to have been misrepresenting God because we gave it as our evidence about God that he raised the Messiah and he didn't. If that is, then the dead are not raised. If, if this is true, if, if that's, if, if Christ's resurrection didn't happen, then, then we've been leading a lie. Like we've been following after a God who we claim to be savior and the weight behind it just isn't real. For if the dead are not raised, your faith is pointless and you are still in your sins. And what's more, people who have fallen asleep in the Messiah have been perished for good. He, he, he's saying, listen, this is, not a com this is not a shopping cart. You get to go and pick out what you like about the parts of this. I like Jesus teaching on love your neighbor. Really enjoyed that. Love the idea of the golden rule. It's like a step up from like, don't do to others what you wouldn't have done to you, which is like the avoidance of evil. And he's like, no, no, Jesus came along and said, do to other people. He took the initiative on this. You should act in a way that you want. That, that's like a, a step up in human evolution of thought. This is a big deal. He's taken something and, and kind of moved us forward in this way. 
And that's true. All of that is very, very true. But what kind of authority is backing that sort of thing? What kind of thing does he have to say, and you should listen to me because... Paul would say, if it's not because I rose from the dead and nobody's ever done that before and I've conquered death like the ultimate enemy, then it's all empty. This has to be true for the validation of God, uh, for the validation of Christ through God to kind of work through this and process this. And if, if it's not true, then we've all just perished for good, that there's no hope for us. N.T. Wright is a New Testament kind of professor sort of thing, and he had this fantastic trilogy on like Christianity 101. It, it starts with simply Jesus and after you believe. And then the last one is called Surprised by Hope. It's super fantastic. And it's all about the resurrection of God and the resurrection of Christ and what that means. And he had this to say in there, with the resurrection of Jesus, a new world is dawned in which forgiveness of sins is not simply a private experience. Is it a fact about the, it's a fact about the cosmos. If the Messiah has not been raised, we are still in a world where sin reigns supreme and undefeated. So that the foundational Christian belief that God has dealt with our sins in Christ is based on thin air and is reduced to whistling in the dark. You take this one thing out and according to N.T. Wright and his interpretation of what Paul is talking about here, all we're doing is whistling in the dark. To not believe in the resurrection, to not believe that that has some sort of a hope for us beyond this that yes, the, in, the community is injured in this process, but we live, we go through this with the hope that it, this isn't how it always will be. To, to, to show up at church, to have some sort of a religious conviction, and I love this, I love that my kids are learning to be nice to other people, and Lord knows they need it, and, and I'm not good at teaching them that, so somebody else needs to do that. And I love that it's, um, it feels good, and it's, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm doing better as a person, and all of these things. And to hear like, okay, um, yes, but I'm gonna pass on the whole Jesus resurrected from the dead. I'm gonna really go like, I don't even know what this means for my life after this thing. I can hope for that kind of thing, but is it based simply on emotional hope versus any sort of foundational truth? Paul would, Paul would say, or N.T. Wright would say through Paul, any lack, any, if this isn't true, we're wasting our time, which is what Paul says here. If it's only for this present life that we have put our hope in the Messiah, if it's only for this life that you keep showing up to church, that some of you give here, that some of you will serve, either you have served this morning or you will serve in one of our kids' rooms or this fall, I do a good enough job recruiting you and you will serve. Side note, take that down, write that down in your notes. If you do that for a church and none of this is true, Paul says, you're wasting your time. You should be home watching preseason football, which is a waste of time, <laughs> but not as much of a waste of time as giving yourself to showing up at church if this isn't real. That's what Paul's essentially saying. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time with this. I really like the morality that comes with church and I'll just... I'm iffy on the resurrection stuff. I don't know. I mean, I, he's like, it's, it, it's all, it's, it's part and parcel. It's, it comes together. It's a package deal. You don't get one or the other. Listen, 
This should be a, a place of hope. This is why the church has called it the blessed hope, right? This is why when we take communion, we, I, you'll see some slides that show up during communion because we're gonna do it today. One of it talks about communion being a thing of the past or a reminder that God has expressed his love for us uh, unconditionally through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. We do this in communion with one another as it highlights the present. And there's a future anticipation for it, a blessed hope, something that we look forward to that one day we all share a meal together, even with those who have passed on before us. That's, that's the, the tripart thing of communion, that the church has lived with this and will live with this. And we, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make the death of someone that you loved um, easy. Like you shouldn't show up at a funeral with a smile on your face. And if you're not, you're not really a Christian. That's not what that means at all. It still injures us big time. Why? Because we lose something about the experience of life in the process, not just in that relationship, but in how we experience community. That's absolutely true. And we can be angry at death and you should be. And we're not, it's not, it, it, it's not something we take lightly. It's, it's very, very serious. I understand that. If you've ever been angry at death to the point of hatred, Christianity has an answer for you. Paul finishes it off with this phrase, this whole thought that he's been working through, this reasoning process for them. And he says in verse 26, the last enemy to be conquered is death. The last enemy to be conquered is death. Any Harry Potter nerds out there right now? Does this phrase look, sound, familiar? As soon as I read it, I heard a couple people go, (laughs) why? Because on Harry Potter's parents' tombstone is written these words right here. The last enemy to be conquered is death. Why? They died as in a sack. Listen, I'm not a Harry Potter nerd. I'm going to attempt to dive here just to prove my relevance to you. Honestly, I've never read the books. I have been to both of the theme parks in Florida. Does that make me an expert? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but here's what, I, here's what I do know through some research this week. Voldemort in French means flee from death. Voldemort, mortality, flee from mortality. I don't want to know that I'm dying. I will do anything to stay alive, including the blood of whatever. I don't need any of the law. I'm getting too deep in the woods. I don't want to die versus the paradigmatic Harry's parents who sacrificed themselves for the sake of their son, who embrace death when it means something beneficial for somebody else, who don't hang on to life for all that it's worth with this survivalist mentality at whatever cost. We talked about this in I think week two of this series. I don't want to die. I'll do whatever it takes. And the doctor comes and says, you got two weeks. You should take care of your affairs. Go spend time with family members, whatever. And you go, no, I'm going to get another doctor. I'm going to get a doctor who's going to tell me what I want to hear. I'm going to fight this thing to the end. And I'm not going to take care of my business. I'm going to go down swinging and go down punching. I'm going to go down valiantly like a warrior, right? And you're like, my goodness, that's me. That just shows we're afraid. We're afraid of death at that point. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of insignificance. I'm afraid of loss in this way. You conquer death when you're no longer afraid to die. It doesn't mean it doesn't make you sad. It doesn't mean it doesn't injure the community and that life is different beyond this. But you conquer death when you're no longer afraid of it, which I think is the position that Paul himself got to. I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. 
I get it. I've done all of this thing. It's, he's not writing letters going, please, if any of you have any influence with these jailers or with any political people, get me out of this jail, get me out of this prison. He writes from the prison in Rome, knowing he's about to die, letters to friends. And what is he doing? He's closing up his business. He goes, I'm not afraid of death. And if my death means something to any of you, if my death proves my commitment to my faith or whatever, then so be it. Let that be something that, that is shown. The blood of the martyrs is the saints for all kinds of, of, of things to be able to grow. How many, how many stories, one of the reasons that I think um, uh, is talked about in, uh, in Rodney Stark's Rise of Christianity, this is in my, my notes, is uh, why did Christianity take so long, to, or, or, or not take so long, but survive the, the first century? Why did it grow so fast? Because a lot of people were killed for their faith and people witness and go, Somebody, these people are dying. They're not afraid to die for what they believe. That's a conviction I don't know much of because when times get hard, you tell me what you wanna hear me say and I'll just say it, right? And these people are not, they're doing the exact opposite. What is it in them to be able to do that? They live without a fear of death. They're not scared. I mean, they, it, it's not that, they, that it's not gonna hurt. It's not gonna be painful. It's not gonna be this, but it's not the end for them. We live with this hope. They lived with this hope that there was something beyond this. Why did they live with that hope? because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus to the core of their being. And they knew that there was some sort of inheritance with that, that kind of came to them that somehow when Jesus said, there is, I'm, I'm going somewhere where I'm going, you're gonna fall and there's gonna be a place, I'm gonna have a place, all this kind of stuff. They believed him. They believed him when, they, when, when he began to talk about this future, even though this wasn't a part of their Jewish history. When he changed the game, showed up on the scene, and said, I'm the clearest picture of what God is like and what you can have on earth. And I'm telling you, there's life beyond this life. And I'm gonna prove it to you in my own thing and invite you to live in that way too. And some of you will, might die for the faith. That, well, he, not any of you, you're Americans, you're probably gonna be fine, right? <laughs> but he, in his crowd and to his disciples, Church history says that like 10 of them died for their faith. It's a big, significant deal. <clears throat> Why are you no longer afraid to die? Because death is in the end. It's common, not a period. Jesus gave his disciples a simple, practical, uh, and a difficult statement one day. He was always really good at these. Simple, practical, but extremely difficult to carry out. Here's what he says. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's walking them through this process. <coughs> Death becomes life. This is the cycle. This is how this thing works. You die and then things come up as a result of this. Death is a natural process of life. It's nothing to be afraid of. We worship a savior who has conquered death, who has promised, who has invited us into an awareness that there's something beyond this. Speaking, he's speaking, by the way, he's using this agricultural language to an agricultural society He's talking to people who actually plant seeds. You may have a garden. This makes sense to you. Most of us don't have gardens, right? We buy our produce at Yolks. Here's him going, this is how it works. You know this. This seed was once, you know, this is kind of a waste product of this thing. It goes into the ground and it dies. He's speaking to them in their language. So if he were speaking today, he would say something more along the lines of what we would be familiar with. And he would say, unless a dollar is invested in the stock market, it remains only a dollar. But if it is invested, it quickly becomes worth about 50 cents. That's how this, <laughs> bad timing, Jesus, terrible, terrible analogy. Which all of this leads, and I'm closing with this, to Paul incorporating or writing in almost like a hymn 
uh, a liturgy, whether it was saying as a part of the church process prior to this, there's, there's definitely some instances, especially in Philippians, where Paul writes about, uh, he uses this terminology and the way that he talks about it kind of shows that they were already doing this. Um, you have to remember the early church didn't have a Bible. The story that we know of is that Christians would gather together on Sunday morning. Sunday was a work day for them, by the way. So they would gather together before work on Sunday. Can you imagine church if we did this, but it was Monday mornings at like 6 a.m.? How many of you would be like, I'm good, I'll figure it out. I church from home, you know what I mean? Uh, Absolutely. I understand that. The early church gathered together on a work day before work started. They would get together, they would share a meal together, and they would talk about like who Jesus was. They would commit themselves to being good people, generous with people. They would commit themselves not to be frauds to their employers, not to be thieves, <coughs> not to uh, live in adultery with their spouses, all this kind of stuff. And then they would go to work. That was the early church. That's what they gathered together. They would sing a song. And some of these songs, what would these songs be? Songs that would show up. And Paul apparently knew some of them and he wrote them into Philippians and, and probably one of these things as well. Probably this is one of the songs that the early church would have sung. And this made it into the literature is just why Paul writes to Corinth saying, you know this, this is why we sing this. This is when you sing this, this is what you should think about. Here's the song. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? You can see that like the, even the literature, like the, the literary style of this stands different apart from what he's saying. He's speaking rationally with points and you know, counterpoints and all this kind of stuff. And then he goes into this like poem sort of thing. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here's what he's saying. Live your life in a, where, uh, in, in a way that you are aware of your mortality, but you are not afraid of it so that you can live more fully, so that you can give more fully to the people that you love, to your community, to your friends, to your neighbors, so that you can labor in the Lord and know that it's not in vain, that when I do this, I may be losing materially. I may be losing in all of the way that this world measures wealth and winning, but I am winning somewhere else. I am winning in a different way. And Paul says, that's only true if you believe in the resurrection of Christ. And that's only true if you believe in his words about what that means for you, that we share an inheritance as heirs of Christ. <clears throat> and it's an invitation then to be aware of our mortality, to not be strangers to it. That's not the space that we wanna be. To not cut to commercial every time it gets awkward, but to instead not be afraid of it, to believe and look at life as not a period, but a comma, and invest and give ourselves away for the sake of those we love and those we have been called to love by our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a good way to live. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that that would be absolutely true for us. Give us wisdom to know what that looks like, courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.